Our first scripture reading is Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came to Galilee, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 14. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in my time here at uh, Northminster Church, which is over two years now, uh, I have gotten a number of questions about the Trinity and particularly about the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? How do we talk about the Holy Spirit? Uh, it seems like for Presbyterians, we just don't quite know what to do with the Holy Spirit, do we? Uh, and so I want to take a couple weeks here, starting today on Baptism, Our Lord Sunday, uh, today to unpack the Trinity a little bit, and then the next two Sundays to talk about the Holy Spirit and uh, just do a little bit of teaching on that. So today, let's talk about the Trinity. Trinity is not a word found in the Bible. In fact, it took a couple hundred years for the church to really flush out and agree on this idea of Trinity. We think it was first used by Tertullian in the early 200s. Okay, so that it's still, that's significantly after the time of Jesus, right? That the church is still working out this description of God. The idea is that we have one God, but that that God is made up of three persons, the Father, the Son, that's Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Three in one, one in three. That seems perfectly clear, right? No. How can there be three gods? And it's not three gods, but it's one God. Is it three persons? Are they all persons? Is the Holy Spirit a person? It certainly sounds like three gods when you say it that way. Or is it one God that sort of has multiple personalities or different costumes and sort of jumps over here and, hey, I'm the Holy Spirit, and here I am Jesus, and then... No, it, it's not real clear, in fact. Um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the famous basketball player for UCLA and then for the Los Angeles Lakers, uh, once was asked on the Johnny Carson show why he changed his name from Lou Alcindor to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and became a Muslim. And one of the things he said was that it was the Trinity. He just couldn't get his mind wrapped around this sense of Trinity, but he could understand Allah, and so he went in that direction. We might find ourselves in some ways in the same boat, trying to make sense of this trinity. So here, just to begin, let me, let me try to help you. The trinity doesn't make sense. It's called a paradox. Okay, People have been trying to figure it out for years and years and years. And guess what? You can stop now. 
It's a paradox. Okay, it doesn't quite add up. And, and to help you get a sense of that, there's a picture in your bulletin. It's also up here on the screen of, uh, of a carving. This carving comes from the Cartmel Priory in England. It dates to medieval times, uh, 1450 or so. And uh, it, it's, it, this is actually a replica of that carving. I want to get one. I haven't spent the time and money to order it yet. Um, but it's one of the best illustrations of the Trinity I think I have ever seen. Just stare at it. You can stare at it. It's in your bulletin or it's up on the screen. Just stare at it for a minute. It's kind of strange, right? It's like one of those pictures where the picture is two things and your brain like switches back and forth. Or if you're a little bit computer savvy, if the ballerina is spinning one way and then suddenly is spinning the other way. Okay, you can see the face in the middle. Uh, seems like that's Jesus's face. It makes sense, the one we can see. But then the eyes are sort of shared with these two other faces on the side, like all these three faces. And if you look at it long enough, the faces sort of switch back and forth. It's just kind of a strange... I've seen lots of people try to draw the Trinity. This is my best picture of the Trinity I've seen. It's like God has three faces and just when you start to see one you sort of start to get the other and it i think we have a problem and i blame all the logic of the enlightenment really that we want our theologies and our doctrines to make sense and to be logical we want to add it up okay we want to master god okay we want to break god into his component parts and understand everything about god that we can and the problem is anytime we're talking about god we're talking about something so different than us, so far off of us, that we are never going to totally be able to describe God. Okay, Paul says it this way in Romans 11. Oh, the depths, depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. How are we ever going to understand a God that's so different than us? Okay, so the only thing we can do is we can try to make up language for it, and we can try to make God, but you know what we end up doing? We end up making a God that looks a lot like us, and maybe that's every bit as dangerous. <coughs> if you're married, you can understand this, right? Hey, I, uh, if you've been married, you get to know a person really, really well, okay? Too well. Sometimes we call it ammunition, right? You know how to push this person's buttons, but as long as I've been married... I still find out new things about my spouse, right? I can never know every, I can know more than I did when we got married, but I can never know everything about my spouse. There's always more, okay? The, the, we, can't even we can't even fathom the depths of a human being, okay? And all of their experiences. Now we're talking about God, you understand? And God is so other than us, we could not, you don't understand, we could not know anything about God Unless God first knelt down and started to tell us. Okay? Which means you're never going to totally... God is so far beyond your understanding, you're never going to totally understand Him. The only way you can is that over time, God reveals Himself. I think that's what the Bible is. The Bible is this long chronology of people experiencing God and trying to write down what they've experienced and trying to put language behind it. And, and it does. It evolves. It changes. If you read about God in the earliest Bible passages, okay, he marches around like a human being, and there's lightning, and there's thunder, and he looks a lot like the gods of the Canaanites. But as you keep reading the Bible, the, the picture gets clearer. I've used this metaphor before of it being like a telescope. 
Okay, and then it, it gets a little clearer, and the telescope expands and gets a little focus, and then expands and gets a little focus, so that we're getting to know God over time. But our language is always delayed. Does that make sense to everybody? Our language always follows our experience and is passed along to try to help us experience God. Okay, okay, if you've been married, okay, if you've dated, you understand this too, right? You start getting feelings for one another. And then eventually you say, I love you. Okay, the experience, the feelings come before the language and the commitment. Everybody with me? That is the purpose of our theology. Our theology is meant to help us get to know better. The problem is we make our theology the center point. Okay? My teacher, Len Sweet, talks about theology as a trellis. Okay, everybody know what a trellis is? When you go to grow grapes, you have some kind of structure. Grapes will like wrap around themselves and won't let grapes grow. Okay, because of the way they, they tend to wrap around each other and suffocate each other. So at my house, we have a pergola instead of a trellis, which means we have pretty grapevines. We don't really get a lot of grapes because they, they don't grow properly uh, because they don't have the right structure. They kind of grow wild. So what a, what a, a grape farm will do is it'll have a trellis, a structure... And they can be wood, they can be metal, they can be wire. There's all kinds of different ones. But, but the, the purpose is to make the vine grow right so that their structure, so that the vine will bear the most amount of fruit. Okay, that's our doctrine. That's our theology. It's meant to help us bear fruit. Okay, the problem is we argue about the trellis. Okay, ever since the Enlightenment, ever since the Reformation, my trellis is better than your trellis. Okay, and John Calvin's trellis is better than John Wesley's trellis. You understand it? And a trellis, our, our theology becomes a way of us knowing who's out and who's in rather than a prop for our faith to grow on. Okay, everybody's following me? There is, I don't think there's a single theological issue in which this has been uh, the case more than with the Trinity. Okay, the Trinity has become this doctrine that you have to have God understand, or most Christians, I think, if we were all honest, we pretend like we understand, but we really don't. But it was never meant to be that. The Trinity was meant to be a way of explaining how to experience God. Okay, it was a way of describing, the, and so the people could have deeper relationship with God. And instead, it became a series of doctrines of who's in and out, who's out. And even for somebody like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a way of losing your faith because you can't understand it completely. So we've got to develop it differently as an experience of the divine. And even though Trinity is not a, uh, used in the Bible, it's a later description. Throughout the entire Bible, God is experienced in this way, in sort of three different ways. First, there are times when God seems to be up there. Everybody say, up there. Up there. Say it again. Up there. up there. There's times where God seems to be up there. He seems to be out there. Um, he seems to be creating, thinking, knowing what's going on, having perspective on the world, leading, guiding people uh, for battles, for journeys. God up there. So sometimes God is where? But in the Old Testament, there are also times where God seems to be right there. Everybody say right there. Right there. So there's sometimes where God is up there, but there's sometimes where God is right there. We're, we're in, a, uh, in a bush, in a garden, in a pillar of cloud or fire. The Psalms talk about God being visible in creation. Sometimes God seems to be up there, but sometimes He got to be right there. And sometimes, 
God is where? Up there. Sometimes God is right there, but sometimes God is in here. Everybody say, in here. There are some times where, the way the Old Testament describes it, the Spirit of the Lord comes. Okay, And the Spirit of the Lord will be on this person or on this event. Elijah is filled with the Spirit of the Lord, and then Elisha gets a double portion. That's God not up there, not right there, but God in here. And so you can look through the whole Bible, and we could do a lot of work on this, tracing how God seems to be in this three different ways uh, throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes God is above seeing it all. Sometimes God is visible right in front of us. And sometimes God seems to be in us and with us. Now, here's where the trick. Once we get in the New Testament, we start to see those three aspects of God, not like at different times, but all at the same time. Uh, for one, uh, there are many times... So, um, when, when, G, when Mary gets a word from the Lord, God up there does something in here that then is right there. You know what I mean? There's God speaking, there's the Holy Spirit, and then she has Jesus. I mean, all at the same time. And of course, the critical passage for this is our passage for today, the baptism of our Lord Jesus, Okay, where in this crazy moment, Jesus is being baptized. So he's right there. But then a voice comes from where? Up there, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the dove comes down to be on Jesus. Now, it's not really a dove. What does the passage say? Like a dove. So we always envision this like a dove. But, but I think the gospel writers are just grasping a straw, trying to say, like something like a dove. You know what I mean? They don't, they don't know how to describe it, so they do the best they can. Again, our language for God is always inadequate. So we, do, we can't have God jumping back and forth or different portrayals of God because in these couple instances and then a lot more when Jesus is praying, when Jesus is talking about he and his father sending the spirit, we clearly have a, a father, a son, and a holy spirit. So the early church has to wrestle with this. They have to say, okay, well, now wait a minute, wait a minute. We say we have only one God. That's very clear. But is Jesus God? And, and they do some wrestling. And I think that uh, I covered this in a sermon a few weeks ago. I think the testimony of Scripture is clear that Jesus is God. He says that he and the Father are one. He even says that if you have seen him, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Gospels speak of the transfiguration where the glory of Jesus is shown. John says in the beginning was, beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. So, uh, and if the resurrection ascension uh, certainly make good final arguments on that. I think the harder question was the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? Um, and the, the, the early church has to figure out the Jesus piece. And they wonder, is Jesus sometimes just human, sometimes God? They, they say, no, he, he is both. And then they've got to sort of, this is why it takes time to understand Trinity. They have to wrestle with the Holy Spirit. How do we describe the Holy Spirit? Okay, in, in John, when Jesus is talking of his coming death and departure, he tells the disciples that, he, that it is good he is leaving so that God can send the Spirit in his name. Now, a name is not just a name. Okay, a name was who you were. It was your identity. Okay, and so, so to, to send someone in his name is more than just 
somebody representing him. He's sending a part of him. In fact, the language is that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Okay, That it's like part of the Father and the Son going. A number of times in the New Testament, uh, there is this formulation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We just read about Paul ending one of his letters that way. Paul does that multiple times. Jesus does that at the Great Commission. He tells them to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, so those, are all, those are in the New Testament already put together as one. So the early church has to develop this idea of Trinity. And uh, that's the word they use to describe this, this mystery of how we can have three in one. They each have their own roles, and that's why we use the term person. Okay, they are they are a person. They have you know the spirit is doing the spirit's thing, and the father is doing the father's thing, and the son is doing the son's thing, and yet they are all the same. And the, the way the early church talked about that was substance, that even though they're three persons, they're all of the same substance. They are all equally God. Now the early church probably had some of the same questions you did about this. Okay, and what they chose to do was lean into the mystery. What they opted for was to lean into the mystery and just say, this is all we can say about God. And maybe our language isn't sufficient for that. But they don't get bogged down in the paradox. And I would encourage you not to get bogged down in the paradox. But let's let's move past it. And instead of just thinking as the Trinity, as this doctrine in the back of your head you're trying to figure out, think about this as three different faces of God like we have in our picture. Three different ways to approach and experience God. Um, I like how my friend Graham Standish talks about this. He talks about God the Father, the God up there, as the eternal purpose. So as you relate to God, in, uh, as you experience God the Father, it's about morality, ethics, truth, these larger things. Law, purpose, big picture. That's why it makes sense that we imagine God up there. Because he can see it all. Okay, that, that's the God the Father. I can, the God the Father is seeing it all. He has purposes, he has plans, he has direction. And we all have experienced God in some ways like that, at least I hope. Jesus Christ, the God who is where? Right there. Graham Standish calls the incarnational presence. Incarnational presence. That whenever God is in flesh, whenever we can see God in Scripture, in creation, at work. Remember when Jesus did this weird thing where he said, uh, if, if you love me, you, you, would, see, you would feed the poor. Okay? You, would, you would take care of the least, the lost, the broken. But Lord, they'd say, when, when did we see you? When did we see you poor and naked and clothe you? and do all? But, but, but you see, Jesus is identifying with the poor. Whenever we see God, whenever God is visible, it is Jesus. And the God, the Holy Spirit, the God where? In here. My friend Graham Sanders calls the inspiring power. That's the God that's with you. The confidence, miracles, leading, special events, intuition, these, these special moments where God has to be close to you, where God gives you words to say when you don't have it, when he gives you courage. That's the God in here. So when I do my sermons, I don't typically like to give you that many applications. Okay? What I like is the Holy Spirit to do that, and we'll talk about how the Holy Spirit does that next week. 
Okay, like the Holy Spirit to lead you in the direction that you're supposed to go with whatever God has said uh, through me. Um, and a lot of times I like to end my sermon with questions. This sermon's a little different. I'm going to give you some homework. Okay, I'm going to give you some homework here. What I would like you to do this week is to try out the Trinity in your prayer life. Okay, here's what I find. I find a lot of people, when they try to experience God, when they try, a lot of Christians, let's be honest, have very generic prayer lives. Okay, anybody else feel that sometimes? We pray at grace, but we're praying that God would bless this food, you know, and if you're eating Cheetos, that's a miracle, right? (laughs) Nourish this food to our body. We're just saying words. We're not really talking to God at that point, okay? And I think part of it is we have a generic prayer life because we pray to a generic God. So here's the test piece for this week. Here's your homework. I want you to try this week to pray to God Trinitarianly. In other words, be specific in your prayers. Okay? So when you want to pray about plans, purposes, big big, big picture, meaning, I want you to pray to God the Father specifically. I want you to say Father. Okay? And and I, I think you can actually physically do this. When you pray to the Father, look up. Okay, when you pray to the Father, look up. Okay, have your head up and say, Father. Okay, and I think your prayer life dramatically changes, by the way, if you start praying out loud. Okay, start praying out loud. But pray to God the Father as if God is up there and you plan, he's, he's over plans and purposes. Pray to Jesus when you need God close, when you need God to sympathize with you, when you need to be thankful. And here's the way you can pray to Jesus. Don't do this at work. But take an empty chair. Take an empty chair and put it across from you. And this one I really think you should pray out loud. Pray to Jesus as if Jesus is sitting in that chair. Pray to Jesus as a person sitting in that chair who can hear you, who can understand you, who is with you. And this week, I want you to pray to the Holy Spirit. Everybody understands not to pray to an empty chair at work. I just want to be clear. <laughs> Do that at home. When you pray to the Holy Spirit this week, when you need strength, when you need knowledge, I want, that's when I want you to bow. Okay, Not out of reverence, but looking inward to say God is, the Holy Spirit is with me. And when you do that, I want you to pray out loud, but I want you to whisper. I want you to whisper to the Holy Spirit, remembering that he is close, that he is with you. Okay, so you have a real generic prayer life. You may be praying to a real generic God, and that is not the God we serve. So have a little bit of experiment, a little bit of imagination in your prayer. I think it will unlock some things for you, because that's the purpose of the Trinity. The purpose isn't for theological doctrine. The purpose of the Trinity is to help us experience God in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.